Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 3 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth of York, Chapter 2, Part 1 A very elegant Latin epithalamium was written on the marriage of Elizabeth of York by a learned prebendary of St. Paul's, John de Gigli. It is a great curiosity, and, though too long as a whole, for the limits of the present work, an English version of a few specimens relating to the royal pair is subjoined. The first extract commences with the seventh line. Hail, ever honored and auspicious day, when in blessed wedlock to a mighty king, to Henry, bright Elizabeth is joined. Fairest of Edward's offspring, she alone pleased this illustrious spouse. Then, after much rejoicing at the happy prospect of peace, and re-establishment of the ancient laws, and some unnecessary allusions to Nestor, Priam, Hector, and invocation of the pagan deities, the reverend poet addresses Henry to this effect. Though it may please you proudly to derive ancestral titles from the ancient stock of Frankish kings, your royal forefathers, your beauty more commends you to our hearts. Features benign and form of graceful mold, virtues concomitants which wait on you, and with each other vie to make you shine in splendor more adorned. The poet tells Henry that the fruit of war is won, the ermine has descended upon him, the crown is on his head, the scepter in his hand, peace smiles for England, and he only requires a spouse to complete his happiness, and he thus calls his attention to Elizabeth. So here the most illustrious maid of York, deficient nor in virtue, nor descent, most beautiful in form, whose matchless face, adorned with most enchanting sweetness, shines. Her parents called her name Elizabeth, and she, their firstborn, should of right succeed her mighty sire. Her title will be yours, if you unite this princess to yourself in wedlock's holy bond. Alluding to Henry's tardiness in celebrating his nuptials, the royal fiancé is made to express the most passionate impatience. She says, Oh, my beloved, my hope, my only bliss, why then defer my joy, fairest of kings? Whence your delay to light our bridal torch? Our noble house contains two persons now, but one in mind, in equal love the same. Oh, my illustrious spouse, give or delay. Your sad Elizabeth entreats, and you will not deny Elizabeth's request, for we were plighted in a solemn pact, signed long ago by your royal hand. Henry is then reminded that her youthful affections had been given to him, and that she had patiently cherished this idea for years. 
How oft with needle, when denied the pen, has she on canvas traced the blessed name of Henry, or expressed it with her loom in silken threads, or broidered it in gold? And now she seeks the fanes and hallowed shrines of deities propitious to her suit, imploring them to shorten her suspense, that she may in auspicious moment know the holy name of bride. Your hymeneal torches now unite, and keep them ever pure. O royal maid, put on your regal robes in loveliness. A thousand fair attendants round you wait, of various ranks, with different offices, to deck your beauteous form. Lo, this delights to smooth with ivory comb your golden hair, and that to curl and braid each shining tress, and wreathe the sparkling jewels round your head, twining your locks with gems. This one shall clasp the radiant necklace framed in fretted gold about your snowy neck, while that unfolds the robes that glow with gold and purple dye, and fits the ornaments with patient skill to your unrivaled limbs. And here shall shine the costly treasures from the Orient sands. The sapphire, azure gem, that emulates heaven's lofty arch, shall gleam, and softly there the verdant emerald sheds its greenest light, and fiery carbuncle flash forth rosy rays from the pure gold. The epithalamium concludes with the enthusiastic wish of the poet, that a lovely and numerous progeny may bless these royal nuptials with children's children, in long succession to hold the reins of the kingdom with justice and honor. He predicts that a child shall shortly gamble in the royal halls, and grow up a worthy son of Richmond, emulating the noble qualities of his august parents, and perpetuating their name in his illustrious descendants forever. Nor was the Latin composition of the learned Digigli the only poetical tribute to these nuptials. An anthem was written for the occasion, in the following words, in which a strong resemblance will be immediately traced to God save the king. The similarity of the music is still stronger. God save King Henry, wheresoever he be, and for Queen Elizabeth, now pray we, and for all her noble progeny. God save the Church of Christ from any folly, and for Queen Elizabeth, now pray we. Three successive dispensations were granted by Pope Innocent, all dated subsequently to the royal marriage. He addresses the king and queen as, Thou King Henry of Lancaster, and thou Elizabeth of York, and proceeds to state, That as their progenitors had vexed the kingdom of England with wars and clamors, to prevent further effusion of blood, it was desirable for them to unite in marriage. He calls Elizabeth, the undoubted heir of that famous king of immortal memory, Edward the Fourth, thus effacing the brand her unnatural uncle had cast on her birth. Three bulls were obtained, one after the other, before Henry could find one to please him. At last, a clause was introduced, declaring that, if Elizabeth died without issue, the succession of the crown was to be continued in Henry's progeny by another wife, a great injustice to her sisters. Elizabeth, directly after the marriage, gave hopes that this injurious clause would prove of none effect. She retired to the city of Winchester to pass the summer, holding her court there, surrounded by her sisters, her mother and her mother-in-law, Margaret of Richmond, for whom she appears to have cherished the greatest esteem. The king left his bride at Lent, for the purpose of making a long and dangerous progress, through the northern counties, which had been so entirely devoted to Richard Third as to have upheld him on the throne by military force. It was impossible for Elizabeth, 
in her delicate and hopeful situation, to accompany her husband on this progress, for he had to suppress two dangerous insurrections on the road, and one notable plot laid for his destruction. At last Henry got safely to the late usurper's favorite city of York, where the good people discreetly tried the effect of a little personal flattery. At his magnificent entry, they made the air ring with shouts of, King Harry, King Harry, our Lord preserved that sweet and well-favored face. And so well was this compliment taken, that Henry reduced their crown rents from 161 pounds to 18 pounds five shillings. The queen had fixed her residence at Winchester by her husband's express desire, as he wished her to give birth to his expected heir in the castle of that city, because tradition declared it was built by King Arthur, his ancestor. The arrangement of the queen's bedchamber was, according to the ancient etiquette, which had been studied sedulously by the king's mother, the Countess Margaret, who has favored posterity with her written rules on the subject. The royal patient was enclosed, not only from air, but from the lights of day. Her highness pleasure, being understood as to what chamber she be delivered in, the same must be hung with rich cloth of arras, sides, roof, windows, and all, except one window, where it must be hanged, so that she may have light when it pleaseth her. After the queen had taken to her chamber, a peculiar ceremony in royal etiquette, now obsolete, she bade farewell to all her lords and court officers, and saw none but those of her own sex, for, continues the Countess Margaret, women were made all manner of officers, as butlers, sewers, and pages, who received all needful things at the great chamber door. The queen gave all her family a surprise by producing an infant a month sooner than was expected, yet the child was healthy and very lively. He was born September 20th, 1486, at Winchester Castle. The health of the queen, it appears, was always delicate, and she suffered much from an ague at this time. Her mother-in-law, Lady Margaret, busied herself much at this time, for, besides regulating the etiquette of the royal lying-in chamber, she likewise arranged the pageantry of the young prince's baptism, and set forth the length and breadth of his cradle, fair adorned with painter's craft. Elizabeth of York had the satisfaction of seeing her mother distinguished by the honor of standing godmother for this precious heir. Several cross accidents attended his baptism. The day was violently stormy, and one of his godfathers, the stout Earl of Oxford, most unaccountably kept his royal godchild waiting, in the cold cathedral, three hours for his appearance. Oxford came in when the ceremony was nearly over, but he was in time to perform his part, which was that of sponsor, at the confirmation, and, taking the royal babe in his arm, he presented him to the officiating prelate at Winchester High Altar. Then, while the king's trumpeters and minstrels were playing before, the child was born to the king and queen, and had the blessing of God, Our Lady, St. George, and his father and mother. The king, according to ancient custom, sat by the queen's bedside, ready to give their united blessing as the concluding ceremony of the royal baptism. It cannot be denied that Henry the Seventh, afterwards so cunning and worldly, was at this epoch, imbued with all the dreamy romance natural to the studious and reclusive life he had led in his prison tower of Elvin, where his hours of recreation had no other amusement than stories of Arthur and Uter Pendragon. 
he had hitherto spent his days in wales or bretagne both celtic countries speaking the same language and cherishing the same traditions much the royal brain was occupied with the ballads of the mort de arthur with red dragons and green leeks besides the long rolls of welch pedigrees in which noah figured about midway it was remarkable enough that a prince educated on the coast of france should have returned to england with tastes so entirely formed on the most ancient lore of our island tastes which he now gratified by naming the heir of england arthur after his favorite hero and ancestor it is a mercy he did not name the boy cadwallader whom by the assistance of some painstaking welsh heralds he claimed as his hundredth progenitor it was impossible for a king who was a connoisseur in welsh pedigrees to meet with a mate better suited to him in that particular for the queen was lineal princess of wales by virtue of her descent from gladys who had married one of the mortimer ancestors and their posterity was the nearest collateral line to llewellyn the great the memory of the mortimers as the conquerors and controllers of wales was little esteemed by the welsh but the infant prince arthur was the object of their adoration and his perfections are still remembered in their national songs the queen's ague continued and it was long before she recovered her health when it was restored she founded a lady chapel at winchester cathedral as a testimony of her gratitude for the birth of her heir the dower of elizabeth deviated in some particulars from those of the queen's her predecessors as she was heiress of the mortimers some of their possessions in herefordshire and part of the great patrimony of clare formed portions of it her grandmother cicely duchess of york was very richly endowed in this inheritance and as elizabeth woodville the queen's mother had likewise to be maintained the funds were barely sufficient for all claimants the king in consideration of the great expenses and charges that his most dear wife elizabeth queen of england must of necessity bear in her chamber and other divers wises by the advice of the lords spiritual and temporal and the commons in their present parliament and by the authority of the same ordaineth that his dear wife the queen be able to sue in her own name without the king by writs etc all manner of forms rents and debts due to her and sue in her own name in all manners of actions and plead and be impleaded in any of the king's courts the next year was agitated with the mysterious rebellion in behalf of the earl of warwick who was personated by a youth named lambert simnel it was but a few months since the queen and young warwick had been companions at sheriff dutton the public had since lost sight of him and this rebellion was evidently got up to make the king own what had become of him he had been kept quietly in the tower from whence to prove the imposition of lambert simnel he was now brought in grand procession through the city to sheen where he had lived in fourteen eighty five and previously with elizabeth of york her young brothers and sisters the queen received him with several noblemen and conversed with him but he was found to be very stupid not knowing the difference between the commonest objects the king wrote to the earl of ormond the chamberlain to the queen the following may commanding him to escort her and the countess margaret to kenilworth where he then was the people were discontented that the coronation of elizabeth had not taken place after her wedlock and rebellions followed each other with great rapidity lambert simnel fell into the king's power this autumn and when henry found he was a simple boy too ignorant to be considered a responsible agent 
he very magnanimously forgave him, and with good-humoured ridicule promoted him to turnspit in his kitchen at Westminster, and afterwards made him one of his falconers. This act of grace was in honour of Elizabeth's approaching coronation. She preceded the king to London, and, on the 3rd of November, 1487, she sat in a window at St. Mary's Hospital, Bishopsgate Street, in order to have a view of the king's triumphant entry of the metropolis, in honour of the victory of Stoke. The queen then went with Henry to their palace at Greenwich. On the Friday preceding her coronation, she went from London to Greenwich, royally accompanied on the broad-flowing Thames. All the barges of the civic companies came to meet her in procession. The bachelor's barge, whose pageant surpassed all the others, belonged to the gentlemen students of Lincoln's Inn. Therein was a great red dragon, in honor of the Cadwallader dragon of the House of Tudor, spouting flames of fire into the Thames, and many other gentlemanly pageants, well and curiously devised, to do her highness sport and pleasure withal. This barge, rode by the handsomest gentlemen of Lincoln's Inn, kept side by side with that of Elizabeth, playing the sweetest melody, and exciting the admiration of all the citizens assembled on the banks of the river, or in boats, by the activity of the gallant rowers, and the vivacity of their dragon. When the queen landed at the tower, the king's highness welcomed her in such manner and form, as was to all the estates, being present, a very goodly sight, and right joyous and comfortable to behold. The king then created eleven knights of the bath, and the next day, Saturday, after dinner, Elizabeth set forth on her procession through the city to Westminster Palace. The crowd was immense, it being Elizabeth's first public appearance in the metropolis as queen since her marriage, and all the Londoners were anxious to behold her in her royal apparel. She must have been well worth seeing. She had not completed her twenty-second year. Her figure was, like that of her magnificent father, tall and elegant, her complexion brightly fair, and her serene eyes and perfect features were now lighted up with the lovely expression maternity ever gives to a young woman whose disposition is truly estimable. The royal apparel in which her loving subjects were so anxious to see her arrayed consisted of a kirtle of white cloth of gold, damasked, and a mantle of the same furred with ermine, fastened on the breast with a great lace, or cordon, curiously wrought of gold and silk finished with rich knobs of gold and tassels. On her fair yellow hair, hanging at length down her back, she wore a call of pipes, a pipe network, and a circle of gold richly adorned with gems. Thus attired, she quitted her chamber of state in the tower, her train borne by her sister Sicily, who was still fairer than herself. She was preceded by four baronesses, riding grey palfreys, and by her husband's uncle Jasper, as grand steward. Her old friend, Lord Stanley, now Earl of Derby, was high constable, and the Earl of Oxford, Lord Chamberlain. Thus attended, she entered a rich open litter, whose canopy was borne over her head, by four of the new knights of the bath. She was followed by her sister Cicely, and the Duchess of Bedford, her mother's sister, in one car, and her father's sister, the Duchess of Suffolk, mother to the unfortunate Earl of Lincoln, lately slain fighting against Henry the Seventh at the Battle of Stoke. The Duchess of Norfolk rode in another car, and six baronesses on palfreys brought up the noble procession. The citizens hung velvets and cloth of gold from the windows of Cheap, and stationed children, dressed like angels, 
to sing praises to the queen as she passed on to westminster palace the next morning she was attired in a kirtle of purple velvet furred with ermine bands in front on her hair she wore a circlet of gold set with large pearls and colored gems she entered westminster hall with her attendants and waited under a canopy of state till she proceeded to the abbey the way thither was carpeted with striped cloth which sort of covering had been from time immemorial the perquisite of the common people but the multitude of this case crowded so eagerly to cut off pieces of the cloth ere the queen had well passed that before she entered the abbey several of them were trampled to death and the procession of the queen's ladies broken and distroubled the princess sicily was the queen's train-bearer the duke of suffolk her aunt's husband carried the sceptre and the king's uncle jasper duke of bedford carried the crown the king resolved that elizabeth should possess the public attention solely that day he therefore ensconced himself in a closely latticed box erected between the altar and the pulpit in westminster abbey where he remained with his mother perdue during the whole ceremony the queen's mother was not present but her son dorset who had undergone imprisonment in the tower on suspicion during the earl of lincoln's revolt was liberated and permitted to assist at his sister's coronation the stately banquet was prepared in westminster hall solely for the queen and those who had assisted at her coronation the king the countess margaret his mother were again present as unseen spectators occupying a lattice seat erected in the recess of a window on the left of the hall when the queen was seated at her coronation feast the lord fitzwater her sewer came before her in his surcoat with tabard sleeves his hood about his neck and a towel over all and sued all the messes a sewer seems to have been an officer who performed at the royal table the functions of a footman or waiter at a modern dinner party and suing all the messes was presenting the hot meals in a manner fit for the queen to partake of them the lady catherine gray and mistress ditton went under the table and sat at the queen's feet and the countesses of oxford and rivers knelt on each side and now and then held a kerchief before her grace and after the feast the queen departed with god's blessing and the rejoicing of many a true englishman's heart the next day henry partook of the coronation festivities the queen began the morning by hearing mass with her husband in st stephen's chapel after which she kept her estate namely sat in royal pomp under a canopy in the parliament chamber the king's mother who was scarcely ever separated from her daughter-in-law was seated on her right hand at dinner they observed the same order and the beautiful princess sicily sat opposite to her royal sister at the end of the board after dinner there was a ball at which the queen and her ladies danced the following day the queen returned to greenwich from the time of her coronation elizabeth appeared in public with all the splendor of an english queen on st george's day fourteen eighty eight she assisted at a grand festival of the order of the garter attired in the robes of the order she rode with the countess of richmond in a rich car covered with cloth of gold drawn by six horses whose housings were of the same the royal car was followed by her sister the princess anne in the robes of the order and twenty-one ladies dressed in crimson velvet mounted on white palfreys the reins and housings of which were covered with white roses 
the queen's aunt catherine widow of buckingham had been previously married to the duke of bedford the king's uncle in the presence of elizabeth and henry the viscount wells who was uncle by the half-blood of the king received the hand of the queen's sister sicily to the heralds were given the bride's mantle and gown as fees and largess the princess catherine was married to the heir of the earl of devonshire and the princess anne took the place of sicily in attendance on the queen in public she thus continued till her hand was claimed by thomas earl of surrey for his heir lord thomas howard this nobleman affirmed that the young pair had been betrothed in infancy in the reign of richard the third by that king the marriage settlement of the lady anne and lord thomas was made by queen elizabeth on one side in behalf of her sister and the earl of surrey for his son on the other henry the seventh offered at the altar and gave his sister-in-law away the ancient ceremonial of the queen of england taking to her chamber was always performed in earlier times but its detail was not preserved till the autumn of fourteen eighty nine when elizabeth of york went through the formula previously to the birth of her eldest daughter margaret as described in a contemporary herald's journal queen elizabeth's temporary retirement assumed the character of a religious rite on all hallows eve says this quaint chronicler the queen took to her chamber at westminster royally accompanied that is to say with my lady the king's mother the duchess of norfolk and many other ganging before her and besides greater part of the nobles of the realm being all assembled at westminster at the parliament she was led by the earl of oxford and the earl of derby the king's father-in-law the reverend father in god the bishop of exeter said mass in his pontificals the earl of salisbury held the towels when the queen received the host and the corners of the towels were golden and after angus dei was sung and the bishop ceased the queen was led as before when she arrived at her own great chamber she tarried in the ante-room before it and stood under her cloth of estate then was ordained a void of refreshments that done my lord the queen's chamberlain in very good words desired in the queen's name all her people to pray that god would send her a good hour and so she entered into her chamber which was hanged and ceiling with blue cloth of arras enriched with gold fleur-de-lis no tapestry on which human figures were represented according to this document were suffered to adorn the royal bedchamber being inconvenient for ladies in such a case lest it may be supposed the royal patient should be affrighted by the figures which gloomily glare there was a rich bed and pallet in the queen's chamber the pallet had a fine canopy of velvet of many colors striped with gold and garnished with red roses also there was an altar furnished with relics and a very rich cupboard full of gold plate when the queen had recommended herself to the good prayers of the lords her chamberlain drew the traverse or curtain which parted the chamber and thenceforth no manner of officer came within the queen's chamber but only ladies and gentlewomen after the old custom this etiquette was however broken by the arrival of the prince of luxembourg ambassador extraordinary from france who most earnestly desiring to see the queen was introduced into her bedchamber by her mother queen elizabeth woodville his near relative no other man excepting the lord chamberlain and garter king at arms was admitted the queen's retirement took place on the first of november and the royal infant was born on the twenty ninth of the same month 
she was named margaret after the king's mother and that noble lady as godmother presented the babe with a silver box full of gold pieces at the christening festivals a play was performed before the king and queen in the white hall of westminster palace subsequently at the christmas festival a court herald complains there were very few plays acted on account of the prevalent sickness but there was an abbot of misrule who made much sport the queen's second son henry afterwards henry the eighth was born at greenwich palace june twenty eighth fourteen ninety one he was remarkable for his great strength and robust health from his infancy during the temporary retirement of the queen to her chamber previously to the birth of her fourth child the death of her mother elizabeth woodville occurred the royal infant proving a girl was named elizabeth perhaps in memory of its grandmother towards the close of the same year fourteen ninety two henry the seventh undertook an invasion of france in support of the rights of anne of Bretagne to her father's duchy but the queen wrote him so many loving letters lamenting his absence and imploring his speedy return that he raised the siege of boulogne made peace and came back to england on the third of november his subjects were preparing for him plenty of employment at home by rebellions in behalf of perkin warbeck who at this time commenced his personification of richard duke of york the queen's brother second son of edward the fourth and elizabeth woodville the remaining years of the century were involved in great trouble to the king the queen and the whole country the lord chamberlain sir william stanley brother to the king's father-in-law was executed with little form of justice for favouring the impostor and the court was perturbed with doubt and suspicion the bodies of the queen's brothers were vainly sought for in the tower in order to disprove the claims of the pretender and when the queen's tender love for her own family is remembered a doubt cannot exist that her mental sufferings were acute at this crisis in the summer of fourteen ninety five elizabeth accompanied the king to latham house on a visit to his mother and her husband stanley earl of derby perkin warbeck was expected to invade england every day and the king brought his wife with him to lancashire in order to regain for him the popularity he had lost by the execution of sir william stanley warrington bridge was at this time built for the passage of the royal pair while a guest at latham house the king ran a risk of his life from an odd circumstance the earl of derby was showing him the country from the leeds when the family fool who had been much attached to sir william the brother of his lord lately put to death by the king drew near and pointed to a propitious part of the leeds undefended by battlements close to which the royal guest was standing said to his lord in the deep low tone of vengeance tom remember will these three words struck the conscience of the king and he hurried downstairs to his mother and his consort with great precipitation he returned with elizabeth to london soon after this adventure when they both attended the sergeant's feast at ely place the queen and her ladies dined in one room and the king and his retinue in another elizabeth was this year so deeply in debt that her consort found it necessary after she had pawned her plate for five hundred pounds to lend her two thousand pounds to satisfy her creditors whoever examines the privy purse expenses of this queen will find that her life was spent in acts of beneficence to the numerous claimants of her bounty 
she loved her own sisters with the fondest affection they were destitute but she could not bear that the princesses of the royal line of york should be wholly dependent on the english noblemen who had married them dowerless for the food they ate and the raiment they wore she allowed them all while single an annuity of fifty pounds per annum for their private expenses and paid to their husbands annuities for their board of a hundred and twenty pounds each besides perpetual presents in her own person she was sufficiently economical when she needed pocket money sums as low as four shillings four pence seldom more than ten shillings or twenty shillings at a time were sent to her from her accountant richard deacons by the hands of one of her ladies as the lady anne percy or the lady elizabeth stafford or mistress lee to be put in her majesty's purse then her gowns were mended turned and new-bodied they were freshly trimmed at an expense of four pence they were freshly hemmed when beat out at the bottom she wore shoes which cost only twelve pence with latin or tin buckles but the reward she proffered to her poor affectionate subjects who brought her trifling offerings of early peas cherries chickens bunches of roses and posies of other flowers were very high in proportion to what she paid for her own shoes the queen lost her little daughter elizabeth in september fourteen ninety five this infant if her epitaph may be trusted was singularly lovely in person she was buried in the new chapel built by her father in westminster abbey a very tender friendship ever existed between the countess margaret the king's learned and accomplished mother and her royal daughter-in-law in her letters margaret often laments the queen's delicate or as she terms it crazy constitution in one of them written about this time she mentions elizabeth and her infants it is written to the queen's chamberlain on occasion of some french gloves he had bought for the countess blessed be god the king the queen and all their sweet children be in good health the queen hath been a little crazed infirm in health but now she is well god be thanked her sickness not so much amended as i would but i trust it shall be hastily with god's grace the countess declares the gloves to be right good excepting they were too much for her hand and adds with a little sly pride in the smallness of her own fingers that she thinks the french ladies be great ladies altogether not only in estates but in their persons elizabeth's infants were reared and educated at croydon erasmus visited the princely children there when he was the guest of lord montjoy the family picture he draws is a charming one and oh how its interest is augmented when it is considered that sir thomas more and himself filled up the grouping he thus describes the queen's children thomas more paid me a visit when i was mountjoy's guest and took me for recreation a walk to a neighboring country palace where the royal infants were abiding prince arthur excepted who had completed his education the princely children were assembled in the hall and were surrounded by their household to whom mountjoy's servants added themselves in the middle of the circle stood prince henry then only nine years old he bore in his countenance a look of high rank and an expression of royalty yet open and courteous on his right hand stood the princess margaret a child of eleven years afterwards queen of scotland on the other side was the princess mary a little one of four years of age engaged in her sports while edmund an infant was held in his nurse's arms 
There is a group of portraits at Hampton Court, representing three of these children. They have earnest eyes and great gravity of expression, but the childish features of the Princess Margaret, who is then about six years of age, look oddly out of the hood coif, the fashionable headdress of the era. Even the babes in arms wore the same headdress. End of section three. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.